Ready. Okay. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode three of the Promptly Written Podcast. My name's Matt Shigarek. I'm here with Ian Lewis. Hey. Hey. And, um, yeah. Uh, so, for those of you who might just be joining us for the first time, I'm just going to give you a quick rundown, like, real quick rundown of what we do here. Uh, we take a writing prompt. We both write a story. We read them. We talk about it. Is that about summed up pretty good? That's about it. <laughs> so, um, some yeah. banter, of course, that yeah. is inevitable. Yeah, and I, I do have a little bit of banter because on episode two, uh, we were talking about NaNoWriMo. And as of right now, um, those of you who are participating in NaNoWriMo are about 20 days in. You got 10 days left. So, uh, you know, right away, hit that number. I told you I was going to give you an update on me. Epic failure. So, um, I do a, a charity every year that's uh, playing video games for 24 hours to raise money for uh, Children's Miracle Network hospitals. And this year, me and my son went up to my in-laws in Michigan. And so, November 1st, I spent all day driving. Uh, November 2nd, I spent all day sleeping. And then November 3rd, I played video games for 24 hours. So, I like started out just super bad. And then I just never picked up Steam. So, pretty much... The only thing that I wrote this month was this story that I'm about to read to you. Ian, I know you you were uh, not going to do the the whole NaNoWriMo thing, but did you do any writing or are you editing or what's going on in, in the world of Ian Lewis right now? Uh, I mean, I, I did a... Obviously, I wrote this month's story uh, and I, I guess I did a, a small quantity of writing, but I, I'm more in sort of like... Not quite full on editing mode yet, but putting the final polish on what's going to be my next novel. So there, there is some writing in the sense that you're maybe rewriting things, rewording things, uh, maybe adding some additional detail. Really, the process of just making sure that everything is is written the way I want it to be. Everything is said, you know, the the way I want it to be said. That kind of thing. Um, but it's not really a line by line edit. So it's sort of a weird hybrid of. Sort of editing, sort of writing. It's kind of last minute tweaks. Gotcha. So th- this is your last step before you uh, start formatting it for for publication, or sort of. So what I'll do before I start the because for- the formatting piece, um, w- well, as far as ebooks go, it doesn't really matter. But um, when it comes down to paperback, you have to have a page count um, because there's, you know, basically uh, your spine width is going to be determined by your your, your page count. And so if you fall within a certain range, the width of your spine is going to change, which means your artwork for your cover will change, um, that kind of thing. Gotcha. So before I even go into any of that, I need to make sure that I've done all my editing uh, and that kind of thing to make sure that, um, you know, I'm not changing things too drastically at that point because I, I can't have my page count change, I guess, is, is, the, is gotcha. the short of it. Gotcha. And I do do my own editing. I, that may or may not be interesting to people if you're an, an aspiring writer, I guess. You know, you know I was actually going to ask you that. Do you, so you don't use an outside editor. Do you use like beta readers or anything like that? Or do you just kind of – do you have people that read it for you? Or So when I was um, – I guess there's two answers to that question. I used to participate in a, in a fiction critique group, um, which I, I would highly recommend to anyone who wants to be a writer to join a group of fellow writers. Uh, you're going to get – 
different perspectives, um, a lot of good feedback, and it's it's always good motivation, I guess, to be around other writers. Um, I, I haven't participated in that um, probably for two years. Just based on life circumstances, I, 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 something had to give. I didn't have time for it kind of a thing. Yep, I get it. Um, but as far as beta readers go, that's those would have been, been my beta readers, I guess. Gotcha. Um, as far as gotcha. actual editors go, I when I, I used to be with a small independent publisher and as part of the, the contract and whatnot, you know, they would perform their own editing. So the first three the first three novellas that I put out all kind of went through that editing process. But okay. at this point, um not not gonna make any claims that uh I'm perfect. Um but I, I feel like it, it is probably more of a strong suit of mine than not. Um as far as being able to catch things and having spent so much time with the critique group, you start to read more critically, whether it's your own work or other people's work. And so I, I feel like I, I do a good enough job, if that makes any sense, that it's not worth the money to invest in an editor. Sure. Whereas like a, a cover artist, that's something that I will spend money on because I, I can't come up with anything decent on my own. So to me, that's, that's money worth, worth spending. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I was just curious, you know, uh, you were talking about the fiction group. I'm doing the MFA thing right now, and it's pretty much just like a giant online writing group. But that's definitely something like once I'm not in the company of writers very often, I would probably look to seek out. So uh, maybe I'll make you go back. <laughs> I I would love to go back. It's It's one of those things where I enjoyed participating, but um, at the end of the day, <laughs> I, just, I, just don't, I literally don't have the time for it. Yep, I get it. I get it. So speaking of um, the MFA that I'm going through right now, I just had this this like thing that really kind of bugged me in what we were going on this week, and I'd like to vent a little bit if I could. Are you down for that? Yeah, go nuts. Okay, so we we had to read poetry this week, and like I'm not a poetry guy. Are you a poetry guy? Uh, I wouldn't say I'm a poetry guy per se. I, you know, I, I've read a little bit, and I, I guess I'm more of a, a lyrical song lyric kind of kind of sure. a person, if that makes any sense. Hey, um, and to me, that's poetry. But you know, yeah, it is sort of. But yeah, I would say generally, no, I'm not a poetry guy. All right, so we had to read uh, like a collection of works by this guy. His name was uh, Philip Levine. If you're a poetry person, you probably know who he is. He seems pretty well esteemed. He was like poet laureate of the United States, which is like a thing that I just found out. But what 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 really frustrated me when I was reading his poem, and I'm gonna I'm gonna put a link to the one that I I kind of called out, um, so you can see it yourself. It's pretty much just prose. And Ian, I sent you a link to it. You can see it, and I think you agree with me. I mean, it's prose. Yeah. That's broken up with like these weird hard line breaks. And there's no distinguishable rhythm. There's no rhyme pattern. There's nothing that defines it as poetry to me. And it really frustrated me because, like, I I went into my discussion post and I actually typed out the prose. And it read so much better than this broken up, like, mess. Yeah, it seemed like a little anecdotal type of story. Yeah, it, and it, like when you like if you were to read it like in I didn't type the whole thing out just like in prose, but I did like, you know, like a paragraph worth and it reads really well. And what I found really interesting was I went and I like this guy has has passed away, I believe. I don't think he's he's with us anymore. But on YouTube there's a video of him reading this poem. 
when he read his own poem, he ignored the line breaks and just read the prose. And it frustrated the hell out of me because then I'm sitting there and I'm like, why? Like, what is the purpose for breaking this up into a poet, into like the poetic form? If it's just going to be prose and you're going to read it as prose. And like I went off on this and this little tangent about how he probably just needed to be identified as a poet. And it's like I, I feel like poetry is almost like the fine art of writing. Like there's like a pretentious. It can be, but it's also the world of hacks in some cases, I think. Like there's like a pretentious quality. Yeah, yes, like correct. And it, it's like it just holds this reputation. And I think that he just like since he defined himself as a poet, even though he was writing prose, he needed this to be a poem. So I'm going to put both links out there. But one of the questions that my, that my professor actually came back and asked me was, uh, this is verbatim. She said, how do you decide what form a piece should take? How do you determine if something is a poem versus like a short story or an essay? So like I, I came into writing, uh, back into writing through screenwriting. And... Um, I've had ideas that come to me and like I would I've had ideas that I've been writing for the screen and I'm like, you know what? This needs to be a short story. And I've had the exact opposite happen where if I'm writing something and I'm watching the movie in my head as I'm writing it, I'm like, well, shit, I'm going to write this as a screenplay because obviously like I want people to see what I'm seeing, not just, you know, hear what I'm saying. So um, I kind of just told her that, you know, I don't necessarily subscribe like i don't see myself as being like a member of any one genre like i just want to like write a good story so have you ever had anything like that like i i guess i've never had the uh the scenario where i'm trying to purposely or or not cram a particular form of writing into some other genre or some other form Right. Um, I, I do relate to your comment about writing visually in the sense that almost everything I'm writing, I see it playing out in my head. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, you and I had traded notes um, earlier this year about a screenplay. I had started to adapt The, Cam- the Camaro Murders, which was my first novella. Um, because that, that, that one, to me, the second I wrote it, it was it was very vivid in my mind. And I was like... It, you know, this would make a good movie. And the thing was that was sort of frustrating to me was that, you know, the more I read about it and learned about it and talked to you, you know, there's so much that's up to the director's vision. Oh, absolutely. I, you know, I, I'm a control freak to begin with, but I was like, well, this is my story. This is how it's going to go. This is how it should look. This is how the the camera angles would be and, and, and what have you. And I don't know all the, the lingo, but sure, sure. obviously if I could mentally like spit out a movie somehow if like that technology existed i know exactly how things would go and so part of me is like well if i ever had anything of mine adapted i I almost guarantee i would be disappointed with the end result because someone else's vision of it is not going to be mine well sure and it's just like well and i think you know you'll you'll hear people say all the time you know well the book was better you know what i mean Right, but it's just it is, like it often is. because it, well, it's it's just a different medium. And if something was written as a book, like you can't put a character's thoughts on the screen. You know what I mean? True. So so th- there's areas like in that in that book that you literally can't do. So you have to figure out another way to kind of convey the same kind of thing. You know what I mean? That's that's true. But the flip side is that I, I have so many, like at least in my mind, atmospheric type settings in some of these 
these scenes that I'm like, they would have so much more power if you could see them kind of a thing. Sure. And I guess what's frustrating is like with, with nothing under your belt, as far as filmmaking goes, you're really probably not going to get an opportunity to direct your own stuff. Well, and, right. and, and like, it's like, it's one of those things too, where like screenwriting is like, it's a collaborative art, you know, it's not like a single sure. guy or I, I, I should, I should like kind of go back. I'm going to say that like filmmaking is a collaborative art and it starts with the screenwriter. And I think that, you know, when you're writing a screenplay, you're writing like a blueprint for the movie and, you know, it's going to change when the director sees it. It's going to change when a character starts to take on that character and become that character. And you just kind of, kind of like ride it out. So, um, I actually enjoy writing for the screen because I don't have to put as much description into it because like, I'm literally just like, okay, we're going to be on the side of a highway and there's going to be a farmhouse there and it's going to be up to somebody else to figure out what the hell that's going to look like. So it's, 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 you know what I mean? So it's just like, you just kind of like, if you go into it knowing that it's like a shared responsibility in the creation, I think it works out a lot better, but I think it's a little harder especially when you're adapting your own work as opposed to adapting somebody else's work. You've lived with those characters mm-hmm. and those scenes for so long that there's only one way they exist, and that's the way they are in your head. Right, right. So then, you know, as soon as somebody else is like, hey, wait a second, <laughs> that's that's not how he looks or that's not what he's supposed to look like or he's supposed not supposed to be that, you know, sarcastic or, you know, whatever. Yeah, he's not supposed to be cast as Ben Affleck, right? <laughs> I, I don't want to get into too uh, too no, big I'm of just, a tangent, but sorry. I I was actually I didn't mind Batman v Superman all that much, and I know oh, that that's man. that's not a popular opinion. I mean, there's there's some shit that could have been like taken out of there. Like, I think my biggest frustration was just like, why do you got to say Martha? You should just say mom. Like, you both had a mom. You both lost your mom. If you said mom, you'd be like, oh, shit, you had a mom too? Yeah, I had a mom too. Oh, man, it sucks living without our moms. Yeah, you want to be buds? Yeah. You know, like, instead, it's like Martha. Like, who fucking calls their... <clears throat> who calls their mom Martha? Like, and nobody's like, when you're crying out, like, dying, going to be like, Martha. Like, it just doesn't happen. <laughs> like, it's so stupid. I, I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> um, Maybe somebody... uh. Should have taken another stab at that screenplay. I mean, or, or just like, maybe just like, you know, you go cut and you'd be like, hey, maybe run through that one more time. And this time, say ma, mom, mommy, mother, mother, <laughs> something. <laughs> but anyways, that's that's getting way off course. So, um, yeah, so uh, I'm going to put links to this poem and uh, uh, Mr. Levine here reading his poem. And I'm just curious is if anybody else out there even cares to go look or let me know how stupid I am. You know, I like I went into the thing and I was like, I was like, I'm not a poetry expert. I'm not pretending to know better than this guy that was obviously celebrated as like a really great poet. But maybe this is just part of why poetry doesn't click with me, because like maybe I just don't think as abstract as I need to. Yeah, who knows? Who knows? So anyways, um, I think that's all we had for like our little bit of banter today. So what do you say we jump uh, into this week's prompt? Okay, that what do you think? Good. All right, so yeah, this 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 month is this month's prompt. I think you said this week. I did say this week, and I don't know this, if we could get to weekly. That would be something. Well, else. you know, We'd, it's funny because I thought about that today. I'm like, what if we did it weekly? I'm like, 
it would be it would be like be insanely difficult to to come up with a story each week. But you know, that was like, well, would it be more fun for the listeners? But then I'm like, well, maybe they'd get burnout on it. I don't know. I think a month month a month is a good idea. Well, I mean, I think it would be. I mean, just to crank out like fifteen hundred words a week and record and edit like over and over again. I mean, that, and that's some... and do all everything else that is required of me throughout the day. <laughs> right. I was like, that's a little much. But I was kind of thinking, and maybe we can put this to the listeners. I I was thinking maybe we could supplement these monthly podcasts with maybe like a short thing. And I was thinking like maybe some sort of like, you know how like, um, and this is totally on the fly folks. I haven't talked to Ian about this yet, but this just popped into my head the other day. You know, there's like book clubs, right? Where everybody like reads a book and you know, they sit around and talk about it and drink coffee and do whatever the hell they do in a book club. You ever been in a book club? Never. No, neither have I, but I'm assuming that everybody reads the same book and they talk about it. That sounds pretty straightforward right yeah that's my assumption so sure. so what if we were to do like a, a short story club where we found like a short story and we introduced it on our monthly one and then a couple of weeks later we pop out a podcast that's like 10 minutes long where we, where we just kind of like go back and forth about the short story i don't know i mean it's it, yeah it's not a bad it's not a bad idea but like i just i I, I guess I would be afraid of losing focus on like the primary purpose of what we're trying to do. Yeah. Yeah. I was just trying to figure out something that might put us, you know, in people's ears a little more often than once a month. Yeah. But, you know, so um, this month's prompt. Um, did you already say what it was? No, it's uh, a few seconds might buy a safety. I got to tell you, I'm pretty excited about this one. I, I'm excited about my story, too, but. Probably for reasons that won't be uh, like understood or maybe shared by most of the listeners. You'd have to have the same, I guess, interests um, as I do in this sense, but I, I won't spoil it. Yeah, all right. Yeah, I uh, I let my wife read mine, and <laughs> she... I can see her rolling her eyes already. <laughs> well, I, I, she didn't roll her eyes, but like she made a really funny comment, but I'm going to save it for after the story. Um, but it made me laugh. So uh, you want to you wanna kick us off? Sure thing. All right. Did you you titled it? I'm assuming. I di- I did. Uh, it's called Super Red. Super Red. Super Red. Yeah, it's one of these kind of stream of consciousness uh, type things that just popped in my head. And since these stories are so uh, short and sort of on the fly, I I, I kind of went with it. So, all right. John Post lingered over his drink in the Burke Lakefront Airport Lounge. It was a Manhattan prepared with a middling rye and though he'd asked the bartender to use equal parts dry and sweet vermouth, the result was still too sweet. Through the floor-to-ceiling windows, his keen, flint-gray eyes watched the blue Corsair glide in for a landing and make contact with the tarmac past a row of gleaming white planes. It was all a part of the festivities. The Corsair, one of the six warplanes on hand to entertain the small crowd, and the sleek group of white turboprops, an example of Weston Ward's most notable aircraft designs of the last decade. Ward Aerospace was to introduce their newest model that morning, a racing aircraft codenamed Super Red. But it was Weston Ward, the man who'd caught the attention of the X-2 counter-espionage branch. Flamboyant and stubborn, Ward spent his time not otherwise honing his genius intellect, mingling with celebrities and a revolving cast of international influencers. One of Ward's close associates was a Soviet defector named Aristov who'd come to work for him after the war. Industry insiders knew Aristov had brought Russian technology secrets with him, something the Kremlin wasn't quick to forgive. 
Many wondered how many of those secrets made it into Ward's designs, or if the Soviets would try to steal something in return. Then a week ago, a message came across a scrambler indicating a known Soviet assassin called Borodin was seen boarding a flight to the U.S. under an assumed identity. The Director for Intelligence, Post Superior at X2, assigned him the task of looking into it. Post had initially protested, but given the Super Red's unveiling, the interest of protecting American industrial intelligence and personnel prevailed. Plus, the director had said, We have quite the list on this Borodin fellow. He's responsible for the death of at least 13 Allied operatives. I'd say we owe him. If there's a chance to intercept him, well... That was five days ago. With the CIA and local police taking the expected security measures, Post had waited in the wings. He'd seen nothing noteworthy, no threats, no tipping of Borden's hand, even if he were out to eliminate Aristov or Ward. Post eyed his watch, a battered bull of a A-11, and then stood, buttoning his dark blue tweed jacket. The pressure of his Colt Detective Special beneath his armpit was a reassuring thing. He put on a pair of black wayfarers as he exited the lounge and made his way across the near-empty concourse. Coupled with his close-cropped sandy hair and angular features, they gave him a dispassionate, disinterested air, a face that could blend into nearly any crowd. He made his way out onto the tarmac and clipped a press pass to his lapel. It was a suitable cover. The warm spring sun shone with brilliance, and a cool breeze rolled off of Lake Erie in intermediate gusts. The small crowd gathered near the podium popped with a variety of color and texture, from petticoats and pleated skirts to gray flannel three-piece suits. Their attire was a testament to modernity. Post scanned the faces, looking for something amiss. He didn't expect the Russians to make an obvious go of it. He also didn't discount the possibility that Borodin was a red herring, or even that Ward was a double agent in some type of elaborate false flag operation. The real intelligence the Soviets prize, the Rosvedka, can only be procured through illicit means, the hands-on direct access of classified information. It stood to reason that a carefully executed hit on American soil would be highly regarded by their intelligence community as well. He wandered toward the assembly of warplanes, noting the F-6F Hellcat painted in tricolor camouflage, much like the one he'd flown in the war where he'd made it as far as first lieutenant. Beyond, the Super Red sat roped off and secured. With a bell-shaped cow... The plane's pencil-like streamlined design was made complete with flush rivets in the cherry red aluminum. It was powered by a twin-row, 14-cylinder Pratt & Whitney engine and featured retractable landing gears and tail skid. I hear she's as fast as she looks. Post turned to see Levin, his liaison with the CIA, and the only man who knew he was on the job. I've heard the same. Levin stood lean and dusky with prominent front teeth and a cleft chin. His light gray sack suit hung loose on his frame, and he stood with an easygoing stance. He glanced at his watch. This'll all be over soon, and we'll have wasted a lot of manpower for nothing. Post nodded as the conversation devolved into shop talk. He let his eyes continue to scan the airfield, passing from the squad control tower to the terminal with the accordion roof to the low hangar when he saw what looked like a small article of clothing lying next to the hangar service door. It was an innocuous thing, something probably dropped by a busy mechanic. Still, the hangar was supposed to be off-limits during the ceremony. Walk with me, Post said. Levin followed, alerted to Post's preoccupation with the hangar. Post waved him onward. Looks like somebody dropped a hat is all. Just want to make sure there isn't anyone nosing around. He stopped just outside the door and knelt to pick up what indeed was a man's cap. Then he stepped inside the door, followed by Levin. Bistri, Skrit! A brusque voice called out in panic. 
There was the shuffle of feet and the blur of movement, and Post saw two men in cheap suits stumble over each other as they tried to hide behind the tail of a Cessna Skylark that sat in the center of the hangar. A prostrate mechanic lay nearby, motionless. Russians. Post stood rigid and tense, at first struck by the immediacy of their retreat. Then one of them popped out from behind the plane with a black semi-automatic in hand. It was clear they were only looking for cover. Move, Post shouted. He dove behind a pushback tug, pulling his gun from his holster as the first shot rang out. Levin hit the cement hard beside him. With a sharp crack of gunfire ringing in his ears, Post took aim at one of the agents and fired two shots. The Russians responded in kind, both of them shooting now. Levin dared to peek his head up, his Colt police positive in hand. It's Borodin, all right. Post only caught a glimpse of Borodin's flat, wide face that strained in exertion as he made for the door on the other side of the hangar before the other agent laid down cover fire and he had to duck. Levin greeted his teeth. Makarov? Post nodded, counting the shots. Yes, only holds eight. He'll have to reload soon. Make a break for it? We can't let Borodin get away. Post cursed to himself as projectiles pinged the tug. He hadn't come prepared for a shootout. He reached into his jacket for the only other piece of equipment on him, X2's smaller, more advanced version of the Beano grenade. He held it out as if for inspection. A few seconds might buy a safety. Levin eyed the dense hunk of iron, approximately the size of a ping-pong ball, and nodded his agreement. I've got a bum knee, so you'll be faster. I'll cover your rear on the way out. Post swiveled around, teased out the tiny arming pin, waited for the agent to reload, and then threw the grenade at the tail of the Cessna. Designed to explode on impact, it created an ear-splitting crack and a small flash, blowing fragments of the vertical stabilizer into the agent's face. Post made a break for it, sprinting with the trust that Levin would give him enough time. The door loomed like a prize to be won, and he exploded through it as he ran out onto the airstrip. Security guards approached from the opposite end of the field, and the crowd had begun to scatter while bored and flagged down the P-51 Mustang taxiing down the strip. He climbed up the wing and yanked the pilot from the cockpit at gunpoint. Too far away for his revolver, Post sprinted ahead, but couldn't reach the Mustang in time before Borden had thrown the pilot to the ground and seated himself. He had the throttle open wide by the time Post neared. Post took two wild shots to no avail as the warplane sailed down the runway. Post spun his head around and eyed the Super Red. It sat calm and sedate amongst the din. Knowing it would be fully fueled for its demonstration flight, Post wasted no time in running over. The Super Red's proud nose tilted upward, and the cowling caught the sun just right, rimming it with a fantastic glow. The single seat waited for him. Post leapt up onto the wing and tossed one leg after the other over the edge of the cockpit before dropping down into it. He tore through the startup sequence. Fuel selector valve, throttle, carburetor heat, fuel mixture, master switch, primer, and starter. Then he was rolling. He ripped through the security rope and made for the runway. Then he applied full power and set the flaps to take off position. The ground skimmed by as he pulled back on the yoke. The Mustang was a bird in his canopy as Post leveled out, but the Super Red was faster. He gained on Borodin with the angry spin of the propeller in his ears, trailing the Russian as he flew out over the deep blue of the lake. The Mustang's range would be approximately 2,000 miles, assuming its two drop tanks were near full. More than enough to get across the lake to Canada, he thought. Post drew alongside and slowed his airspeed to match Borodin. He looked across the wing at the killer. Borodin's look of surprise only lasted a moment. It was replaced with an angry scowl as he pulled the perspex canopy back on its rails. Then his arm jutted out with his pistol and he fired. Post banked hard to the right. The Super Red whined in response. He pulled through a short dive and then resumed chase. 
This time he flew in at a higher altitude before racing down in a sheer drop across the Mustang's nose, hoping to shake Borodin's confidence. Borodin broke away in response, heading back toward the shore. Post banked again, pushing the Super Red for more speed as he brought the plane around. He clenched his jaw as he veered in for another dangerous pass. He could see Borodin spinning his head around, trying to see behind him through the canopy. Then at the critical moment, Post reduced power, willing the engine not to stall as he once again matched speed. However, this time he flew a few feet above the Mustang. Gently, he began to drop altitude. His gamble was to induce panic and indecisiveness in Borodin as he urged him to drop in response. With any luck, Borodin wouldn't keep calm enough to do anything rational. He'd just tank the Mustang for fear of collision, even though the shore loomed closer with every second. The gambit worked. Borodin complied as post dropped lower and lower, forcing the Mustang into a rough landing amongst a cluster of trees in the grassy area around the runway. Post pulled back on the yoke, skimming the trees, and then with a rush of adrenaline went into a vertical climb at full power until the plane speed zeroed out. The Super Red paused for a moment before the tail began to drop and the nose fell into the dive, completing the tail slide. He eased out of the dive and then made his landing approach, taxiing to a halt near the warplanes once he landed. He slid the canopy open and hopped down out of the cockpit. Borodin's damaged Mustang was swamped with police and CIA, and a few eager reporters weren't far behind. Levin ran up, his tie flapping in the wind. You've got some nerve, Post. He stopped a few feet short as Weston Ward strode over. A lean man with a wiry gait, Ward squinted in the sun at Post. I'll be damned, son. I'd be angrier if I didn't just witness some of the best flying I've seen in a long time. Ever thought about work in the private sector? I can always use a good test pilot. Post did his best to compose himself, straightening his tie and buttoning his jacket. He suppressed a tight-lipped smile. No, sir. Sounds too exciting for me. That's it. The end. The end. Did did you do you actually write the end? I didn't. Okay. No. I'm just, I was just curious. Maybe I should. I was just curious. I just figured I'd throw it out there for the listeners. Heck so yeah. I'm done. Not just an awkward pause. All right. Well, I have. It, it's funny because our conversation, our conversation earlier, you were talking about how you were like very visual, and it totally came out in that story. Like there was a lot of like really detailed visual things that I want to talk about. Um, yeah, there's good reason for that. I'll, I'll explain later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm curious. I'm not sure if there's any reasons for mine this week or month, this month. <laughs> um, so let's see. For this month, my story is called False Hope. Beads of sweat ran down Henry's forehead as he pumped his legs as fast as he could to keep up with Jacob. He felt terrible every time that his brother had to stop and wait for him to catch up. Yet he continued to do so, offering encouragement even as their pursuers gained ground on him. I'm sorry, said Henry breathlessly as he approached Jacob. Jacob smiled. Don't be sorry. Be quicker. He laughed as he grabbed Henry's hand, almost lurching him off his feet. Come on. I think I know how we can lose him. Invigorated by this new sense of hope, Henry surged forward, guided by Jacob, who pulled him sharply to the left, taking them off the main drag through town and into a residential neighborhood. As rushed as he was, he couldn't help but notice that all the houses fit into a neat little pattern. Every third, no, fourth house was identical, with a random coat of paint on a pair of shutters or a front door every so often, used as an attempt to showcase the owner's individuality amongst the monotonous grayscale color palettes of their neighbors. Just as they passed the dwelling of one of these forward thinkers, Henry was firmly redirected to the right and down a driveway. The pair screeched to a halt at the side entrance of a two-car detached garage. 
Shit, exclaimed Jacob as he pulled and twisted at the very obviously locked door. Of course. Today, it's locked. Henry looked up hopefully to his brother. You know who lives here? No, not really. But this door is almost always open, and this guy always seems to have a fresh carton of cigarettes on the back seat of his old. Henry smiled and silently thanked the owner for his unknowing assistance in keeping them stocked with cools. Look, cried Jacob, knocking Henry back into the moment. Over there! Henry's arm was nearly pulled out of his socket as he was dragged over to the back of the house, and then again once more as he was pulled down to his knees next to a basement window. The glass was shattered, patched with only a piece of cardboard that Jacob easily knocked out of the way. He reached through, flicked the lock, and pulled the window open with one hand while motioning Henry through with the other. After you. Henry looked up to Jacob in utter confusion as he rubbed his sore shoulder. Come on, bud. I'm too big to fit through there. Just slide in, and then let me in through the door. He motioned to the back entrance just five feet to their left. Can you do that for me? But what if they're home? Jacob could see the terror in his brother's eyes. He firmly grasped Henry by the shoulders and met his gaze with an intensity that could have relayed nothing but the truth. I would rather deal with whoever we find in there than the guys out here. Henry nodded and reluctantly swung his legs through the open window. As soon as you're through, run over and open the door. We don't have a lot of time. Got it? Got it. He slid backward through the window, unaware of the fact that there was nearly a four-foot drop between the window and the staircase. Jacob could hear the men searching just a few houses away as his brother toppled down the stairs. Shit, are you okay? Henry's head hit the damp dirt floor of the basement, disorienting him for a few moments. He sat up and blinked rapidly, trying to force his eyes to adjust to the newly found darkness. Yeah, I think so. The sharp sound of metal clanging and rattling from across the room got Henry's attention, and he moved further into the basement. The ruckus drowned out the shouted whispers from his brother at the window. Henry, the door! Hurry! Jacob's plea went unheard as the source of the rattling became visible. A small boy sat hunched in a rusted cage on a wooden shelf that spanned the length of the wall. Dozens of cages just like it were lined on shelves above and below it, all of them unoccupied except for one. The boy shuddered as Henry advanced on him and pushed himself as far back into the cage as he could go. Henry held up his hands as a sign of goodwill. Don't worry, I'm not going to hurt you. The boy looked up at Henry with wide eyes, his pupils so large that they looked like giant black holes in the middle of his face. He hesitated for a moment longer and then began to inch forward. He grabbed the door to the cage with cracked, dirty hands. His fingernails were so long they'd begun to curl. Henry! Jacob whispered as loudly as he could without actually speaking. Henry looked back to the window and saw his brother's panicked face leaning through the glass. They're only a couple houses away. What the hell are you doing? Get the door. Henry looked back and forth between the window and the cage, unsure of what to do, his eyes finally settling on the window. He started back toward his brother, but was stopped in his tracks by a raspy voice much lower than he would have expected from a small child. Wait, don't leave me here. I have to get to my brother. They're almost here. Please, the broken voice pleaded. Henry looked back to his brother, motioning to give him a second. Henry, no! Jacob cried louder than he probably should have. Henry reached forward and snatched the door of the cage open so quickly that the boy jumped, hitting his head on the top of the enclosure. It startled Henry as well, but both quickly regained their composure. All right, jump out. We gotta get going. 
The boy moved to the edge of the cage and hesitated slightly before pushing himself off the ledge. The drop was only a few feet, but his stiff limbs failed him and he crumpled with a thud to the floor. He tried to push himself up, but his efforts were fruitless. Henry looked down at him. I'm sorry, I gotta go, he said as he made for the stairs. No, wait! A few extra seconds might buy us both safety. Henry grasped at his hair as if he wanted to pull it all out, torn between his desire to help both this boy and his brother. What do you want me to do? The boy pointed to the wall adjacent to the massive cages, and resting in the shadows was a medium-sized plastic dog carrier. Henry looked back at him with utter amusement. Really? You want me to put you back in a cage? Apparently, the irony was not taken the same way by both parties, and the boy simply shrugged his shoulders and nodded towards the carrier with a look of helplessness that was usually reserved for infants and the elderly. Henry rushed over to grab it. Just as he pulled the carrier out of the darkness, a blood-curdling scream echoed throughout the basement, causing him to release the grip on the carrier, sending it crashing to the floor. Henry! Jacob frantically continued to call his name, but his voice became more and more distant as he was dragged away from the house. Henry's first instinct was to jump to the window, but the boy had been able to grab a hold of his pant leg and wasn't letting go. Wait! You can't just leave me here! The raspy voice cried out. But they got him! They got Jacob! I need to save him! Henry's sobs returned as the reality of the situation began to sink in. He shook his leg vigorously, releasing his leg from the boy's grip, but not before one of the neglected nails snagged Henry just above his ankle, causing him to let out a little yelp. Henry pulled up his pant leg to inspect for blood, but it hadn't broken the skin. A frustrated moment of silence was shared by the pair before being broken by the now familiar rasp. Look, we both know it's too late for your brother. Henry's eyes welled with tears as he turned to meet the boy's gaze, but made no retort. But there may still be hope for the two of us. We've got to move now. Henry wiped away his tears and nodded. He stood and moved to where the carry had fallen and set it up right next to the boy. He opened the door and helped guide his destitute companion into this makeshift escape pod. It was a pretty tight fit, but the boy was able to squeeze himself in without too much trouble. Henry closed the door and locked it, the audible click reminding him of the sound of his father's revolver, the hammer being cocked back just before. Henry shook this memory out of his head as he grabbed the handle and yanked upward. The carrier barely budged due to the weight of the boy, and Henry struggled to keep his footing. Due to the boy's frailty, he failed to see that he was likely only a few years younger than him, and unlikely to be handled as easily as a cocker spaniel. Sorry, this might be a bit uncomfortable, said Henry as he grabbed the front of the cage and began to drag him across the floor. The stairs proved to be difficult, but with a lot of hard work, determination, and more profanity than a kid his age should be so well versed in, he was able to pull the carrier to the top of the stairs. Now completely convinced that the house had to be empty based on how much noise he had just made, Henry felt it safe to sit for a moment, catch his breath, and assess the situation outside. He peeked through the smoke-stained curtains on the back door and found nothing but stillness in the backyard. After a few moments had passed with no change, Henry felt brave enough to reach for the doorknob, flinching slightly as he slowly turned it. The interior door remained silent as it was pulled open, affirming its allegiance to Henry. The stillness outside remained, and Henry, now convinced that it was safe to make a run for it, turned back to grab his cage companion, pushed open the screen door, and moved him out to the small patio. I don't think we'll be able to cover much ground if I have to keep dragging you. You're going to need to try and walk again. 
Before the boy could answer, the silence was broken by a gunshot. Blood splattered across the white vinyl siding of the house, and Henry fell forward, landing on top of the carrier before slumping down next to it. Blood began to pull on the concrete, collecting around the edges of the plastic box. On the roof of the garage, one yard over, tears began to pour out of Jacob's eyes, his fingers still squeezing the trigger. The muzzle of the pistol pressed against his own temple was the only thing that kept him still. Nice shot. The owner of the handgun was dressed in black fatigues, most of his face hidden by a full beard and mirrored sunglasses. He slowly pulled his weapon away from Jacob's head and stood towering over him. A sudden wave of emotion came over Jacob and he began to loudly sob, his body shuddering almost to the point of convulsions. Unable to control himself, he shook violently as he moved closer and closer to the brink of insanity. The man observed this for a moment, seemingly unimpressed. He rolled his eyes before raising his gun to put an end to Jacob's display with a single shot to the back of the head. Jesus Christ, talk about overdramatic. He holstered his sidearm, slung the rifle across his back, and effortlessly scooped up Jacob's body and tossed him over his shoulder. He moved over to a ladder that was resting against the back of the garage and quickly returned to ground level. He jogged over toward the doorway where Henry's body lay. The boy, still in the carrier, watched him approach with his eyes opened wide, grinning from ear to ear. He scampered out of the carrier and stood tall as the man reached him. Did I do good? His eyes sparkled with pride as he looked down at Henry's lifeless body and back up to the man in black. You did great. The man smiled as he patted the boy on the back of the head, nudging him into the house. The man held the door open so the boy could drag Henry's body inside. He then disappeared into the house himself, closing the door quietly behind him. The end. (laughs) I don't even even know what to say. I'm not sure what to make of that. (laughs) This was... (laughs) I, I, I'm starting to see a pattern with my not, writing. Not even, a, not even a shred of light there at <laughs> not all. Not one. No. But your title makes total sense now. <laughs> False hope. Um, I'm starting to de- de- see a distinct pattern in my writing for this podcast. I don't yeah. know what it is. Uh, I might challenge myself to do something with like a happy ending <laughs> one of these months. But um, It would be interesting. We could... Um, yeah, we could get to my thought process in a little bit, um, <laughs> if there was one. So, I don't know. What do you want to do? You want to talk about Super Red first? Uh, that's okay. fine. So, yeah. Go, like, uh, tell me where you were at when you did this. You, you sounded like you had some some stuff to say. So, let's just leave. There's with it. so much I could say about this. Do it. I I I felt like I read a little fast. Maybe um, I was up against the the word count. I was a smidge over two thousand words, and I know we're trying to keep it between one. And yeah, 2, I was over this month too. I was um I was like just under twenty two hundred, I think actually. Okay, that's about right yeah. where I was. Um, but anyway, for the longest time, I had, I'd wanted to do. I'd always enjoyed the um the James Bond novels. Okay. I, I, I love the movies growing up and then later in college read all the novels and have reread them and that kind of thing. And I always wanted to do like a, an homage, like a, f- a 50s spy thriller. And, uh, you know, I never really sat down and thought it through or developed the character. Uh, but I wanted to do like an American version, basically, of, of Bond. And so I thought, what better what better place to introduce a character, right? 
um, than one of these little short stories. So that's kind of what sure. I did. This this John Post character um, sort of plays off the simplicity of the the James Bond name. Um, Ian Fleming, who wrote the novels, uh, wanted to have such a kind of a boring, ordinary name for the character um, because of all the exciting things that were going to happen to him. It kind of downplays that. So I, I kind of went with that sort of boring, oh, mundane, that's interesting. Pedest- p- pedestrian name. Never really yeah. thought about it like that. That's uh, that's interesting. Yeah. So I I tried to, as far as detail, um, Ian Fleming was always sort of a detailed writer. Um, and he did a lot of, I guess you could call product placement. It was very specific with what Bond was wearing or drinking or eating, Mm -hmm. um, you know, clothing and gear and that kind of stuff. So I try to, I try to mimic that here. Um, stylistically, like I said, it's, it's sort of an homage. It's not anything overly original. Um, it's sort of a ripoff, but, uh, I I feel like if I'm honest about that up front, then it's it's okay (laughs) somehow. Homage is good. The things that we like are the things that inspire us, right? Right, yeah. I mean, you could say that art inspires other art, and in this case, it wasn't so much art ins- inspiring new art. It was uh, just, you know, imitation. Sure. So that's kind of where I went. Well, I it. couldn't stop, like, listening to, like, all the details. So one of the questions that I had written down here was, you know, who your influence was for this, and I think you obviously just answered that. Um, so when you go... I was still like astounded by all the amount of details. So like, did you like research like the, these planes in like the era or is this like stuff you knew about or? Yeah. So yeah, this, this story required a massive amount of research and it, it slowed me down quite a bit. Um, it took me a lot longer to write cause I had to, um, I knew some of the planes cause I was into jets and planes and that kind of thing when I was okay. a kid. So I, I knew some of the planes like the Corsair and the, the Mustang on uh, the Hellcat, things like that. Um, but I, uh, I had to do not only research on planes, but also sort of like a little bit on not so much flying, but the startup sequence for the plane, um, which little side uh, story is the whole tail slide thing at the mm-hmm. end was was actually born out of uh, playing with my kids. We had this little red Lego plane, you know, like a propeller driven plane. Sweet. and playing with the kids i was doing tail slides with it i'm like oh that would be like a <laughs> cool awesome. little like you know whatever so it kind of worked its way into this but um but yeah i had to also had to research um espionage and intelligence services so there was a uh precursor to the cia um around world war ii and the name of it is escaping me but one of the divisions was this x2 counter espionage branch and eventually this whole group got dissolved um, into the CIA, but at the time the X two division sort of answered to nobody. Mm-hmm. Um, sort got to make all the the their own calls. It seemed like based on what I read, and so in my little world here, it, it it's survived and sort of exists sort of clandestinely um, and, and still operates. And so that's sort of you know the where Bond's a, a part of MI six. This guy's in X two, and in sort of a you know for all intents and purposes is is a, a spy. So. Sure. Um, in, in, in the stories, you never, you know, Bond is never always on a, there are always different types of missions and they're not always like, um, you know, some of them maybe a little bit more fantastic than others, but they're all still pretty grounded. And, and, uh, this is sort of one of these sort of Bond-esque assignments where it's sort of like, 
looks like a dead end. Not much is going to happen. Seems like a waste of time. He doesn't want to be there, but then something happens. So, so let me... But I had to research a little bit of Russian. I had the Russian exclamation in there. Uh, things like that. I'm sure I butchered it. So let me ask you this. So as you know, but everybody else doesn't know, like I'm a I'm a Bond novice. Like I think I watched maybe one movie with you in my life. I want to say. Yeah. And you fell asleep. It was, I tried to make you watch Thunderball <laughs> and you, you fell asleep. It was it was late. I'll give so you that. Is, but is there yeah, a is there a uh, a book that you would recommend for for anybody oh, who isn't familiar? Ooh, and you know what? Let's tough. go to the movie too. We'll do book and movie. Well, because the, the the fans of the movies aren't necessarily fans of the books and vice sure, versa. So. There are a lot of people who are fans of both. But, but, we, but I got to figure that most of the people listening to this are either writers or readers. So that's tough. So I would say real quick, I would recommend. Um, either from Russia with Love because it was one of the early Connery films and that's probably the most gritty realistic Bond film that maybe was ever made. Okay. Um, I like Thunderball a lot though also with Connery because they've got the formula down like the Bond formula and that will make sense if you're familiar with the movies. I won't get into it but he also has some of the best one-liners in that one. So you're a Connery guy Um, then? I'm a huge Connery guy but I will also say I'm a big Timothy Dalton fan. He only did two films in the 80s because he's come the closest, I think, to representing the literary version of the character. And I'm also a huge Daniel Craig fan. So you can't go wrong with Casino Royale or Skyfall um, as far as the newer interpretation of the character. But as far as the books go, I really like um, On Her Majesty's Secret Service is really good. Uh, it actually made me like the movie and I have a new appreciation for the movie after having read that book. Um, for Marshall with love is also good. Uh, trying to think. Yeah. I okay. won't get onto a tangent there, but all right. So. Well, if anybody out there is like me and has no experience with James Bond, like there, you got some, you got, you got a good starting point, I think. Yeah. So yeah, it was, it was, it took a lot of research. Um, because I wanted to make sure my details were period specific, and I I took some liberties with like the Beano grenade was a real thing, but I I made it you know an advanced version, much smaller, could be carried on a person without looking dumb. I have no um, idea what that even Western looks like. War- How do you spell that? B e a n o. It was a, sort of an experimental type of grenade um, that was supposed to explode on contact, but it I, I don't think it 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 was used by X two, but probably didn't live on very long after that. But um. Weston Ward was sort of a, um, uh, what's the guy, Howard Hughes type of character. Um, even the the plane Super Red was was modeled on uh, Howard Hughes H1 Racer, I think it was called. It was like a, a racing airplane. Uh, so there there was a lot of influences like that in there that was that that were supposed to just kind of harken back to that that time gotcha. period. Well, very cool. I, so I, I was really happy with it just because I, you know, like I said, kind of always wanted to do this, this sort of story. And I, I still think I might do a novel at some point with this character. Um, no immediate plans, but well, maybe it's funny someday. that you say that because I didn't have any plans for these characters beyond this story either. But there, there might be something out there. We might have to figure something out. But um, before before we move to that, I just wanted to say that I really enjoyed all the visuals that you that you did put into this like there was something where um like i think one moved in front of the sun it was like rimming it with a glow and it's just like something you can picture and you could see that on the film and it just like made it very 
feel very real. Cool. I'm glad you enjoyed it. So, how do you feel about Henry and Jacob's little thing? I, I'm unsettled. <laughs> so, it started out where I feel like you had, um, you know, last month you talked about your pop culture references and things you enjoy. I, I It started out with a very, like... Um, you know, E.T. vibe, maybe like these kids in the neighborhood or, you know, even like um, like a Stranger Things sort of thing, which I know they're also kind of riffing on that that nostalgic sort of 80s sure. film with kids. And so that that's what it sort of felt like to me starting out. I mean, you know, we had some conversation offline before before we started. I, I kind of knew things were going to go <laughs> south with this one, even if that would have been a good guess anyway, right? I mean, um, it probably would have been a good guess anyway. Yeah, but I, I obviously had no clue what was going to happen. And, uh, you know, for these things to, 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 to have happened, my, my mind kind of went, you, you like the burbs, right? Love the burbs. Yeah. The burbs is a great film. It's sort of, uh, it's one of those, those cult classics. Absolutely. I think that some people just, just don't get it. I, I and think my kids need to, and my kids were, need to watch the burbs. That needs to be. Yeah. They probably won't appreciate I think they, it. But, uh, Alyssa will. But I, yeah. Well, w- when you had this guy sort of like, it sounded like he was in almost like army gear or something yeah. up on the roof with a rifle. I'm thinking of, of Bruce Stern's character, <laughs> that's, R- Rumsfeld. That's awesome. He's up on, in fatigues up on the roof with the rifle. And obviously that's, you know, not, not exactly what's going no, on. No, not at all. Well, and the thing is, I'm not sure what's going on either. But like, so what's interesting is we were talking, there were actually, I didn't throw any, pop, I didn't have any pop culture references in mind when I wrote this one. But like, I always kind of pulled settings and whatever from my, from just like my my life or whatever so like the house was modeled after my my grandfather's house and how i got this idea is his his house was robbed once and how they broke in was it was like a an adult and a child and the adult sent the child through the basement a broken basement window like he broke the basement window sent him through and had him open the door like that's literally how his house got broken into so i like used that and then i was like well you know, there should be something weird in the house. And then I was like, well, uh, somebody needs to die. <laughs> <laughs> somebody doesn't have to die. I just, I, I felt like that's where this needed to go. And then, and then I was sitting there and I was like, I was writing down the notes and I had like an outline going and I was like, man, you know, it'd be real messed up if his brother shot him. And I was like, well, shit, his brother's going to shoot him. <laughs> <laughs> that's just what happened. So, <laughs> well, as it turns out his brother's a good shot. Well, and and well, and that's something that need that I think could be could be developed further because you know I told you I, I had my wife read this, um, because she's a great like grammar punctuation. Just like hey, this doesn't make sense. Hey, <laughs> there was a point where I said like thought instead of through, and she was like, really, he's gonna thought the door <laughs> and I'm like no he's going through the door <laughs> thanks <laughs> but she finished the story and she was like you know you and these short stories she's like who are these guys like what are they doing like what's the problem and I'm like I don't know like that was my answer I don't know it's like well what were they running from they were running from the bad guys well why why were the bad guys chasing them I don't know they probably did something bad you know and it's just like, it's yeah, just like, I don't I, know. I will say I, I did have questions. I had those questions too. Like, what are they running from? Why is this guy working with this small child to, you know, take out kids basically? It was, right. You know, th- those things are. So there's definitely something here that I think could probably, 
probably be developed further if I wanted to. Like, like on a on a psychiatrist couch. Of, like, <laughs> 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 I'm gonna put a little in there. Yeah, do it. <laughs> but um. Yeah, no, I mean, like, wh- why was he a good shot? Maybe this is a world where these kids need to be familiar with firearms, you know, like maybe. Oh, I didn't think about that. But you did you did mention, like, you know, there was the memory of his father's yeah, revolver, I which that kind of came out of. Well, and it too. just kind of came in there and I wanted the click to, like, trigger something. But, like, again, like, I'm not entirely sure what that means. I actually have an idea. I, I almost feel like you need to to expand this universe. I might. Like, Almost like maybe tell different parts of the story before and after. You might see maybe. Henry and Jacob again. In fact, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go ahead and just put it out there. In some shape or form, we will see Henry. Well, I mean, Henry and Jacob are dead. So Henry and Jacob's world will be, you know, developed further. Yeah. I think you should. I mean, you know. So I, I, you have it, you have like impressions here. You have like, ideas and so this is almost how a lot of my stuff starts out where i have you don't have motivations yet or maybe reasons why you just have these like scenes or like these ideas or this thing and then you kind of have to let it germinate and and then it 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 might become a a well and that's what i kind of like doing about the short why i kind of like writing the short stories a lot is because like i feel like i'm just writing a scene it's just like you know you came into this and they were already in trouble we don't really need to explain why um, and then at the end, like, it doesn't matter why anymore because they're both dead. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, I mean, that's, you know, a lot of cases it's, it's, it's sort of like a slice of life thing where you just sort of get just a, a quick little peek in, into somebody's existence and then, then it's over and you don't have to have a, a plot, you know, start and finish and that kind of thing. It's just, you it's just an observation right. basically. Right. So I had a lot of fun with this one. Um, this one probably came together quicker than either of the other two so far for me. Interesting. I don't know why. It just like, it just started to like, like once I get started, like once I get that first hook, like once I was like, okay, they're going through the window, then it just kind of flowed out. Like then there was some crazy kid in a cage. Like, yeah, I mean, you, you had me, like I, I didn't know one, like where it was going to go. And it was a total fake out with a kid in the cage. I did not see him sort of being in on it. Well, that's good. I like that. That's good. I mean, that, that definitely took me by surprise. It almost felt like, I, I'm sure you re, are going to remember this, um, scary stories to tell in the dark. Absolutely. Like, and there was like the artwork in that. It was, you know, like I remember. The artwork def- in that was crazy awesome. It was very creepy. Um, like it's like, still we, good. In grade school, we like, we devoured those books. There was, oh, I yeah. remember at least being two, two volumes, maybe three. I don't remember. You know but, what? I'm going to put a link to that out there too, I think. There you go. But I guess my what I was going to say is like this story, not content-wise, reminded me of it because obviously this is way too intense for 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 kids. But like the type of story or the vibe it leaves you with where like it does, you know, it just co- sort of like it it paints this scenario and then like it it just takes this dark turn and it just sort of ends and you don't really get any kind of like satisfaction out of it. Sort of reminded me of some of those stories where some of them were kind of humorous and just kind of gross or whatever, but some of them were actually pretty dark. And the way they ended, you're like, oh, that's it's kind of, at least I remember as a kid, you know, being uns- un- unsettled with it a little bit. But Yeah, you know, I haven't read one of those in a real long time. I, I know, be interesting. It would be interesting forever. to go back and look at them and see if they still like, 
if they see, still kind of hold up or if there's any nostalgia to it or if it's just right. you had to be that age, you know? Yeah, and I think the artwork combined with the stories, it was sort of like a perfect uh, the, storm. Yeah, the art was super red. Like, it was um, really cool. I, I remember, like, some vague stories, but I, I don't remember, like, entire stories. I remember bits and pieces. Yeah, I'm going to have to go see if I can get them at the library or something. Yeah, I'm going to have to search those out. Maybe I'll see if I can get them on the old Kindle or something and just kind of page through them real quick. The old Kindle. The old Kindle. <laughs> Break out the old Kindle. All right. Well, I don't know. I think that about wraps it up for this month, no? I think so, yeah. All right, man. Well, that was another good set of stories. I'm excited to see what uh, next month comes up. Um Let's see here. All right. So let's see. If you want to be part of the Promptly Written Podcast, if you want to have any input as to what we write about, there is a Facebook group out there um, where we run polls and you can go submit your, your prompts. Um, and that's at facebook.com slash groups slash prwrittenpod. For those of you not on Facebook, you're going to want to go to promptlywrittenpodcast.com. Use the contact page. You can just use the subject prompt and uh, put it in there. Uh, we can go ahead and add it to the Facebook group, get people voting on it, or maybe we'll just like it and then close the poll on Facebook and say we're going to do this one because, you know, we can do that. Um, we're also on Twitter at pwrittenpod. So if you want to uh, throw a prompt at us there, um, we could do some follows. That'd be good. Um, let's see, what else do we got here for you? The episode four will be out on January 7th, and it is looking like... As of right now, the prompt for that is going to be, well, that can't be good, <laughs> which I'm pretty excited about already. And like, yeah, I'm sure you are. Well, and what's funny is I think it, I, I came up with that. It just kind of popped into my head one day, and I'm pretty sure that I had something really good for that one, but I didn't write it down. So okay. I'm going to have to sit there and see if I can come, come up with what it was again. Um, and then I think the last thing is, if you like what you hear... Um, I want you to leave a review on Apple Podcasts and then tell all your friends to come listen to us. We have somebody who's grounded and somebody who has a tendency to murder children. So there's something for everybody here. Yeah. Also, um, be on the lookout uh, all month long in December. Um, all of my eBooks will be on sale for 99 cents a piece, which is a really good deal. Uh, so if you ever wanted to, you know, try me out, you know, this is a really inexpensive way to do so. I, I have, um, and you should do so. Yeah, I've si a little bit of science fiction, some mystery, mystery thriller, ghost story, rural noir, all in a blender type stuff. I've got a couple mass market thrillers, um, but you know, the different different stuff. So if you have different interests, you might you might find something you like to read. So, and then that's uh, ianlewisfiction.com. Okay, and then if I throw like a link to like your Amazon page or something out there, will there be links to all your books in there? Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, we'll do that. We'll throw that in the show notes too. So you guys can look in the show notes and find a link to his, to Ian's Amazon page and you could go buy all the good things. Yes, and leave reviews if you enjoy the read. There you go. All right, well, I think that does it for this month. We will see you in 2019. Yeah, thanks for listening. All right, later. Later.